Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode on the Sea of Change podcast series. In today's episode, we will be focusing on mental health. I'm your co-host, Joan. Lesia, do you want to introduce yeah, yourself? I can take the reins. Hi, everyone. Um, you will not have heard from me before. I'm Alessia. I'm taking over for Neural today. And um, I'm also second year, but I'm on a four-year course. I study politics, philosophy, and law at King's College London. Um, and I'm so excited to be here. Everyone, uh, well, to our listeners, today we have with us two guests. And Alessia, do you want to introduce them to our listeners? So today we'll be talking to, to Ms. Kitty Joey, who's the founder of Ripple Community. Um, and Ms. Alicia Lee, who's the community engagement officer of uh, the Women's Aid Organization. I'll give you guys like a brief summary of what Women's Aid Organization and Ripple are about. So Women's Aid Organization is a Malaysian NGO that provides free shelter, counseling and crisis support to women and children who experience abuse. Ripple is an online platform based in Malaysia that spreads mental health awareness and they are currently looking into, they're kind of pivoting towards the special needs and special education cause in terms of mental health. (laughs) I think um, just to start this off, I think it's topical right now to talk about mental health, especially during the COVID-19 crisis. And recent reports from the World Health Organization have um, indicated that levels of domestic abuse have risen as much as like 50 to 60 percent in different regions um, and there are numerous reports that are coming out about the volatility of mental health surrounding the crisis just because it's so um, it's creating such an uncertain future for many many people just to anyone I guess I want to ask what are the subtle signs of deteriorating mental health or signs that a person is um, being abused and like how can we kind of look um for that uh joey do you want to go ahead first uh i guess i will cover like signs and symptoms of uh, deteriorating mental health generally right yeah uh, usually people would feel especially during the COVID 19 season there will be excessive fears or worries um, there will be extreme mood change maybe you will see that uh, the individuals that you are your loved ones um their mood fluctuates a lot throughout the day. Uh, Withdrawal, they will also tend to withdraw from their loved ones. Uh, They seem to be significantly tired or fatigued. Um, They also may have uh, sleep difficulties or eating difficulties or even changes in their weight because of uh, their appetite. These are some of the signs and symptoms. And of course, uh, the extreme would be having suicide ideation, uh, plans, or even attempts. Did you say that's like across the board, like age, regardless of age, regardless of um, gender or um, sexual orientation? Yeah, so these are usually the signs and symptoms for depression, anxiety, uh, for both of these disorders, because those are the most common um, disorders, uh, especially during this COVID-19 season. Yeah, so of course, there are many, many other disorders with different symptoms. But generally, these are some of the signs that we can pick up. Okay, what about you, uh, Alicia? Like, um, because I understand that women's aid isn't more like towards the medical kind of region. Right. How, is, how does that like differ in terms of like Ripple's approach to like, you know, noticing the subtle signs of deteriorating mental health or abuse? Right, so in terms of uh, noticing subtle signs of abuse. Uh, obviously, 
the different types of abuse, there are impacts on the uh, psychological well-being of our survivors. And uh, similar to what Joey has mentioned, you know, there's you know, suicidal ideation and there's also signs of depression and anxiety. And those are things that our survivors do experience as well because of the prolonged endurance of the violence that they, that they experience. And so, for example, it's helpful to have a reference point or a baseline of the survivor's usual uh, behavior or attitude. So, for example, if you know um, this particular survivor, maybe um, she or he is a friend. And um, usually, maybe they're, they're very upbeat, mm -hmm. they're the life of the party, or um, they, they always joke around, or they, they just have like an infinite amount of like energy and they're just like everywhere, right? But if someone goes through abuse and trauma, the subtle signs would be they, be, they appear more isolated. Maybe they don't really want to hang out with you anymore. Um, maybe they're kind of like pulling away if you ask, if you check in and then they kind of just uh, brush it off and say, oh, everything's fine. And then they pull away when usually they'd be like really forthcoming about what's going on in their life. Um, they may even be more paranoid uh, because uh, what abusers do is that they do, uh, they do observe the survivors every move, whether it's mm -hmm. digital or like in real life. So that can make the survivor more paranoid and maybe they just, they're just constantly looking over their back, mm. essentially. Their self-esteem may fluctuate. Maybe they start doubting themselves a lot more, mm -hmm. uh, feel like they're not good enough when, you know, maybe they are like high achieving students and they have everything going for them. But for some reason, uh, something's a little bit mm. off. Maybe you just, they don't feel good enough and all that stuff. A red flag as well is when they start apologizing for everything, um, even when, yeah, so even when it's not their fault, in order to kind of like gloss over or like have conflict avoidance, they will apologize even though it's not their fault because that's how they've been like primed to be because mm. of the abuse. I feel like there's, there's quite a huge difference between like female mental health and male mental health in that way so I want to ask um, both how do you differentiate it and how do you help with mental health um, I guess mm -hmm. I will be covering the male perspective uh, because yeah um, WAO focus more on women yeah. and abuse right mm -hmm. yeah so for men uh, I actually looked up um, there's a few statistics so uh, based on work health organization, what they found out is that in high-income countries, three times as many men as women die by suicide because of suicide. So, And also, two to three times more men, they turn to the misuse of substances to cope with it. So that then makes the, the symptoms worse, right, because of their unhealthy coping. And on average, one in eight men will experience depression and one in five men will experience anxiety at certain stage of their lives. So I think this one goes back to the very prescriptive um, O-H idea of how a man should be like, right? The social um, norms, especially in Asian countries where there's this burden oh, yeah, of definitely. toxic masculinity. A uh, man has to be a certain yeah. way, you know. Even in movies, we see characters, they 
they can't show any weaknesses. Men has no fear. You know, men just have to suck it up. And yeah, so like big boys don't cry and stuff like that. So we mm-hmm. hear those things um, growing up. And I have a younger brother as well. So I do see how um, that plays out in our society these days. Mm-hmm. And because of that, uh, because of all this repression, men tend to uh, also repress their emotions. And that why in terms of their symptoms it may manifest differently men tend to be more irritable mm-hmm. more aggressive and more angry even if uh, what oh, they're wow, facing okay. is actually depressive symptoms oh, wow. yeah so that's how um, all these social rules kind of shape us into yeah. performing that way mm-hmm. and i would like to point out the 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 main issue right is that uh, there's this stereotype where if you seek for help mm, yes. it means that you're weak Mm-hmm. Or it, it, because of your personal uh, mm-hmm. fortitude, like your own problems, right? So men tend to mm-hmm. hang out with other men in setting matches, right? Yeah. At football pitch and stuff like that. So they don't really have yeah. a safe space or a support system where they can actually share about things like that. They they usually share functional stuff mm-hmm. like you know work issues or like mm-hmm. sexual problems, things like that. So then this then perpetrate the, the issue further. Alicia, like in terms of, well, women's aid organization, like how, like female mental health, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think adding on to, you know, what we have in terms of cultural and societal norms, I do think that women's mental health still has a certain stigma to it as, you know, as mental health does in general, especially in the context of, uh, going through abuse or even like normal yeah. normal everyday problems, there's this stigma where you keep it to yourself. People will tell you to not talk about your struggles, you know, keep it keep it behind closed doors, um, especially especially if it's domestic mm. violence related. They will always say that it's a family issue. So it's a household issue. You're not supposed to bring it out to the community, not the police officers, not the lawyers. Um, not even like NGOs who specifically help for issues like that. And that really does uh, cultivate even more um, environments where abusive relationships or just uh, the, the idea that uh, we can't speak about our problems, like it, just, it just breeds that type of mentality even more. Even though we are in 2020 and we always say like, oh, we should always, like there's always a safe space. You can, you can speak to somebody about it. But the, but the issue is uh, when you do share, you yeah. take that first step to share, then you, there's this automatic perception within yourself, even not, even not just how other people view you, that you are broken. Something went wrong. And yeah, I, yeah and I do think that mm-hmm. because of that, a lot of women also have that fear of reaching out because they don't want to be labeled as uh, too emotional. Yeah, like something went wrong, it's their fault. Um, You're you're Mm -hmm. too emotional, Mm -hmm. you're over-exaggerating. And I think that's what um, media and whatever it is that we have in our culture right now, there's always a perception that women are the more emotional ones. That's why we can't take leadership roles. That's why we're not good managers. And like, there's so many layers to it. And it's not just one aspect, right? And so because of that, I do believe that 
that's where women tend to downplay or like minimize their emotions. So for men, like for men, yeah. what Joey said, like, oh, they'd be like, maybe they lash out or they'd be more aggressive to like, uh, because of toxic masculinity and all that stuff. But then for women, it's like, oh, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to be labeled dramatic and all that stuff. So it's really dangerous, especially if you're in an abusive relationship and you might just label it as overthinking. When in fact, you know, you are go, you are really going through something and you should really reach out. But because of those stigmas, it really does affect, uh, I feel like, the women population in general and also mental health as well. All of this also points to the fact that yeah. like in the Asian societies as, as well and probably more so, like we put a premium on like being really conservative and we have like strict traditional Mm-hmm. kind of values so to cause a scene or we're not we're not those type of people yeah. you know what I mean? mm-hmm. we're always kind of like sit down or your parents or grandparents will tell you don't cause a scene yeah you know solve it on your own if you can um and how much mm-hmm. do you think that that contributes to like reporting um domestic violence or mental health issues in the west so i can't really say for mm-hmm. sure like whether the westerners also have that type of mentality um as the same as you know asians do with our conservative background. The main thing is throughout COVID-19, the increase of domestic violence happened worldwide, regardless of which country you're from, whether you have a good social economic uh, status, whether you have access to mental health facilities and all that stuff. Yeah, and like, well, thank you for sharing that, both of you. Like, I just, I feel like we definitely have like a, like, like male and female mental health. These things are so rooted with like mm-hmm. all the cultural and societal problems, you know, in general, especially mm-hmm. within the Asian landscape, I would say. Like, I want to talk a little bit more about trauma management. Like, how do we, how does one balance between encouraging victims to reach out for help while making sure that these said victims are also in like a comfortable mental state? I think this, um, this question is more directed towards WAO, I think. So when our survivors reach out to us, they are always in a state mm-hmm. of like three things, either fight, flight, or freeze, because that is how um, innately our body reacts to, in order to protect ourselves, right? So there's only three ways. Uh, especially yeah. in um, in like really life-threatening situations. And so in their mind, they're, already, they're always in an unsafe environment because everything is unstable and you don't know like when, when the next thing is going to happen. And so when they come to us, um, the first step would be uh, to have their case managed. So that means uh, crisis support. And that's where our social workers come in and um, they assess their needs, whether they need shelter, whether they need, um, they need legal, legal aid support and all of that stuff. And then in the process of the case management, mm-hmm. we do put in an element of psychosocial support because we understand that there is like a huge impact of trauma on our survivors. And therefore, that trauma should um, be managed uh, well. And with that, we engage with uh, third party or external uh, counseling uh, bodies who come in and they provide uh, therapy sessions with our survivors Mm -hmm. and also uh, their children. So individual therapy sessions with the children as well. So that whoever is involved in the abuse, whether they have witnessed it or they have uh, endured it themselves, they also get the, the psychosocial support that they need. So when they go through 
the uh, therapy sessions, they are finally able to let go and feel safe because, uh, as I said, you know, they were in a really unsafe environment before that. And then when they come in and then they slowly kind of readjust to uh, the real real world or like real life because they're, they're out of that cycle of violence, right? So they come back in mm-hmm. they, and then they finally feel safe and they have maybe shelter where it's a place where they can finally just rest and have proper sleep. Because in an abusive relationship, you know, maybe you might get like content, like trop, like content warning, but you might get choked in your sleep because from their advisor. So it, it is that unsafe and that it is that, oh, you know, life threatening for them. So for them to finally have a safe environment to just even sleep or take a nap, and then they finally just kind of like let your guard down, you know, that is a first step into uh, working on their trauma and uh, really work to empower themselves again and to rebuild their self-identity. And so that's why we believe in, you know, concept like running these things concurrently, especially like emphasis on uh, the mental health of our survivors. Yeah, and I think what you, you what WAO is doing is like amazing because mm-hmm. like I understand that like from a prior conversation that we had, like you don't just focus on just yeah. female victims, right? Sometimes it's the females abusing the men. And yeah, mm-hmm. and I understand that you have like male victims mm-hmm. reaching out to you guys as well because yes. we understand that Ripple will obviously because it's an online platform, you guys will take like a different kind of approach to, to things in general. And I guess my question to you, Joey, um, as like the Ripple's as Ripple's founder, how easy or difficult is it for like a normal person, like a layman like me, to get information on mental health these days? You know, what what could people like me do? Like, is the information mm-hmm. available? You know, as comprehensive and updated as it should be. Um. So, three years back, the reason why I thought of starting this online platform is because uh, I studied in the UK. So when I was there, the mental health information was very readily accessible, right? Um, online, especially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everything is so consolidated. But when I came back, then I realized that that is something that is lacking here. Um, but I need to acknowledge that throughout the past few years, there are many other social enterprise or other bodies that are trying to um, increase uh, the, the access to all this information. Update. Um, there is currently I'm helping out this platform called Mentalog. So what they're doing is they are trying to do like a, what is a web app where you can actually look for therapists wherever you are in Malaysia. Yeah, and then there's also many other apps coming up. Um, there's a few like Naluri that does an overall health. There is Thoughtful World. What they do is like um, Thoughtful Chat, I think. Yeah, what they do is you can text the therapist. So a lot of all these um, social cool. uh, enterprises, they are turning yes. into the di- digital solution, which is, of course, the mm-hmm. next um, yeah. up and rising methods to reach out to more people. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of the information, yeah, going back to uh, creating mm-hmm. updated information. So I we a lot of times mm-hmm. when we are posting up things on the media, because we know that media is one of the factor that is causing stereotypes and uh, having mm-hmm. causing people to have certain beliefs and perceptions about people with mental health um, issues. 
So our role is to destigmatize that. So I guess um, some of our goal is actually to cultivate a more transparent culture. So we do have projects like we have this project called Raw Project where we get people to with uh, mental health issues to come out and talk about their lived experience. Um, and yeah. oftentimes if you listen to it, then you get to see like it is actually a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. The language yeah. that we use, uh, so a lot of times it's a lot of research as we go into coming up with just one content. It's not just, you know, um, typing out things without facts or research based. Yeah, and I, I think what Ripple is doing, like, even though it's like different from WAO, it's like equally as important mm -hmm. because especially in a day and age like ours, you know, social media is everything. It's a double-edged sword. So you just have to learn how to uh, leverage on the benefits you can gain out of using social media, I guess. I'm a huge TikTok user. <laughs> so on my For You page, right? Like sometimes there will be all these like in, um, information about mental health. Like how do you spot depression? How do you spot anxiety? How do you deal with anxiety? And it's like, like whoa, it's mind-blowing. The fact that, you know, in just a matter of seconds like the like tiktok can already like choose an algorithm for you just to, like look at you know it's just to be like short and like quick and impactful and then it's still a double-edged sword yeah concise and it mm -hmm. gets you and i was just because i don't have tiktok and john was lucky judging me or i was lucky judging her but um <laughs> i was like i'm six months strong we were going both ways um <laughs> And I just said, I think that I've seen those because people have sent me those links. And I think that that's, that still kind of works for some people or it works more of like as an intro. But like if you leave it at that, it kind of, I mean, it does serve the purpose for what social media is because it needs to be quick. Like we don't, we don't ever linger on things. Like I literally told a friend the other day who sent me a 20 minute YouTube video. I was like, oh, I can't watch YouTube videos for 20 minutes. I literally can't. Um, and that's just the age of social media for us. So I just, I think, yeah, we were on opposite sides of the spectrum here. I was just like, I think it's great, but I don't think it, it's it. Like that's not where it should kind of end, I guess. But yeah, um, I guess social media is just a tool that we use for psychoeducating um, the mass public, right? Because if we want people to realize uh, that something is an issue, um, education and spreading factual knowledge is I think it's the most important thing is how because like you know in uni like Jones and I were talking about last night it's like people don't realize that you're in such a high pressure environment and you kind of go through a lot of mental health issues mm -hmm. how do we um, extend help maybe as just as friends or just as bystanders when we like spot those like subtle signs of um, deteriorating mental health how can we like without kind of really um pushing them against the the wall where they feel like they have no um choice i think that um that's where psychoeducation comes in right so having all this media content it's a great um tool to actually send out subtle messages to our loved ones yeah. uh, to get them to reach the, their own awareness and their insight because a lot of times, mm -hmm. if you were to force someone to come into uh, treatment, because I do practice as a clinician as well, um, if they don't reach their mm -hmm. own um, epiphany of what they're going through, oftentimes it, it will be, they will be one of the resistant client, we call them, uh, in a clinical mm -hmm. setting, yeah. because the progress mm -hmm. will be low. Say, we do have, well, most of our, the 
the clients who reach out to us, they are already at a, at a stage or state where they just really want to get out of their abusive or toxic uh, situation. And oftentimes, so even when we um, deal with survivors, like we, we don't force them, we don't force decisions mm-hmm. on them. They have to be the ones to choose between the options that we lay out for them. Even if we believe that that option is not the best for them, because we want to give them that like sense of ownership and also for them, and they know their situation best. Mm-hmm. They know their level of safety best. So we had we just have to trust their their decision and then let them go with it, and then we just support um, with whatever tools that we can. There are situations where our survivors do go back to abusers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, of course, disheartening and all of that. But we, we can't really do anything about it, you know? So the most we can do is when they, when they do decide to come back again, then we, we provide assistance, support, and, whatnot, and whatever it is, you know, that we can. Uh, but again, you know, like Joey said, even in the general context, she said that there are resistant mm-hmm. clients, right? So sometimes it's the same with our survivors. Um, so at most, especially if you know the survivor yourself, like you can always just provide resources or explore op- their options. You can explore options yeah. with them. Um, because most of the time, they don't really yeah. know what to do. Um, they, they, might, they might actually think about it like off and on that they want to get out of it but maybe they just lack the courage or maybe it's not Mm. safe enough for them to do so yet so things that you can do is just um, provide avenues for them uh, if you can or maybe just um, according to their own comfort you know maybe they're the type that prefers you dropping a text and just That's asking, it. oh, what are you up yeah. to today? Do you want to get lunch, right? Right. So those are things, so th- those are ways that you can engage with, you know, your friend if they're struggling and going through something without it being too yeah. imposing, you know, like Joan said, you don't want to seem like you're pressuring mm-hmm. them. So how, how do we, you know, as support systems to anybody really, how do we take care of our own mental well-being? Because... Yeah, I, yeah, we can't I, all does, be falling down. <laughs> yeah, we can't all be like on the ground, just like you know. <laughs> um, I could, yeah. I could go first. Important that you have to recognize your own mm-hmm. boundaries, um, because you know, as much as you want to be there for your friend and you don't want to abandon them in their time of need, you can't pour from an empty cup, so right? That's There's true. that saying. So if you, yeah, so if you really really just cannot listen for just that particular night then I, I do think it's okay to draw that boundary and say hey I'm really not in the mental headspace to talk to you about this right now but I know it's not that I don't love you I, I do you know I do want what's best for you but maybe we can speak about this tomorrow or something like that you know that I understand that there may be a sense of urgency that you feel because you want to you wanna help someone you love and you don't want to see them in pain ever, right? Yeah. But really, it's also, you know, if you're really uncomfortable with uh, being just a listening ear, you could always uh, explore other avenues of supporting them, not just by listening mm. to them, 
um, and you know, especially because you may have your own things yeah. going on. Oh you yeah, know, there's pressure <laughs> from there's pressure from right. There's pressure from school. Yeah. Uh, maybe you have you know own personal problems that makes it feel like you can't handle any more um, emotional heaviness from situations like that. So I do think a certain level of self-awareness is extremely important, especially if you want to support other people. You can't just keep extending help, but you don't give the same uh, level of respect and love mm. for yourself. Like you don't care for yourself yes. in the same way. There has to be. There has to be some. some yeah, self love. Self love. Yeah, I think um, also touching on what uh, Miss Alicia has mentioned, right? Uh, I think this is like uh, the right time to also bring in external support from other organizations. I, I, I would like to point out as well, because um, this is for my own personal experience and also being in the clinical training, right? Uh, I think oftentimes we have to always ask, take a step back and ask ourselves, are we really helping this person? Our intention may be we want to help, but sometimes when the savior complex kick in, you may be enabling um, the unhealthy coping of that person as well. So I think that's very important. So sometimes being there uh, may do more harm than good. So being there meaning um, being only empathetic and kind of validating the negative parts that is causing them to be stuck in a vicious cycle. Yeah, so I think, yeah, not, not your presence per se, but you know, how the dynamic is um, going on between you and and always aim to redirect this person to professional help. Yeah, because like I never thought of myself as like, you know, never thought of the situation as being there mm-hmm. sometimes is more harmful than than like not being there like that that that's like such a new approach to me that it's just uh the ASEAN countries specifically um only eight out of ten countries have like a domestic violence act um Mm -hmm. and I guess you can maybe speak about it um more deeply about in Malaysia but like do you think that the laws that we currently have like properly protect uh victims of domestic abuse or um, even abuse, like including mental abuse, such as like stalking or like online stalking, which is now a thing apparently, and mm-hmm. kind of crazy and yeah. creepy. And I've locked all my social media accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, <laughs> right? But like, do you think like do you think that they're properly addressed? Do you think it's like outdated, or do you think there's like room for improvement? Um, what would you say about it? There, there definitely is a need for okay. improvement. Um, so in 2017, there was an amendment and uh, emotional abuse or psychological abuse was covered. So you can um, go to court if someone, if the abuser has you know, caused some form of emotional injury towards the survivor. Um, however, that re- the emotional injury part, how to prove it is you have to go to a general hospital and get an evaluation from a psychiatrist. Um, and so I have had conversations with our social workers and they did mention that some, there's no clear cut guideline as to what constitutes as emotional injury. Um, so different, I guess, different psychiatrists might have different opinions about what, how, like the severity of it, whether it could go to court or not. Um, so we do need, you know, proper guidelines for that specific thing. Um, and also the problem with the Domestic Violence Act is that it doesn't cover unmarried yeah, couples. So if you are 
Yeah, yeah. So if you're cohabitating with your boyfriend or whatever, um, you can only use the penal code um, to like file a report or whatever. Oh, wow. And the problem with the and the yeah and the focus of the penal code is that it punishes the perpetrator, but it doesn't protect survivors. Oh. So the Domestic Violence Act is to protect survivors. Oh, and because no, I can't. That really hit me because that's <laughs> yeah. what I'm doing. It should be a trash. Um, that <laughs> oh. thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Domestic Violence Act, uh, from the amendments, there are protection orders for survivors. So, but it's you know catered to former spouses, spouses, uh, and if you live in the same house. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't provide that protection. Like unmarried couples cannot have access to protection orders, which is really unfortunate because they experience the same yes. things as what a domestic violence, a, a not like a general domestic violence case would go through. They would have stalking in real life, offline. Um, they might get harassed at their workplace by their mm-hmm. abuser. They might come and like really like truly physically harass you. Uh, and they might even continue to abuse you even when you are outside of the home and you're no longer staying with them. So the protection order is really something that is lacking for the unmarried couples. And it's really unfortunate that the DBA doesn't cover that, the DBA meaning Domestic Violence Act, uh, it doesn't cover that uh, at the moment. But we are pushing for these changes. Um, but unfortunately, there might be some pushback. Uh, so yeah we'll see isn't that always the problem yeah. with like and and trying to progress in, in these kinds of like a family yeah. ma- quote-unquote family matters and like internal matters yeah. in yeah. asia i feel like in the philippines it's the same um it's like there's mm-hmm. a lot of pushback on actually even just admitting that this stuff happens it's almost like they don't like if they don't say that you know unmarried couples live together then it's not a thing and it's not going to happen right. to them and people won't do it but really it's just creating like a mm. loophole um and it's just not yeah. great <laughs> it's just not great <laughs> yeah 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 and th- and those become mm. layers of loopholes and yeah. then it just builds up and oh, no but it, it yeah but it also adds on yeah. to the fact that you know that means these unmarried couples yeah. who aren't covered by the domestic violence act they may endure even more severe uh, psychological, yeah, or like mental illnesses that can lead to lead for them to die by suicide. And then if they attempt here, then, you know, it's not, it's still criminalized, right? So there's just this, everything, it's like a domino effect yeah. and everything is just interlinked. It's just really messy. So I would say also please decriminalize attempted suicide. Yeah, so the goal is yeah. one of, we are working on individual level yeah. and community level. And then, of course, you know, the highest level yeah. is we want to push for policy change. Yeah. 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 But before we get there, yeah. Yeah. the yeah. other layers have to also be educated and pushing for the same, uh, being on the same page. <laughs> as recording, I just want to ask, like, what kind of advice would you give to people who are struggling silently? Again, it goes back to fostering that safe environment, uh, education, and also knowing how to seek for help. So if you are going through something um, and after you did some research and you feel that it's something deeper uh, and it's related to your mental health, you can um, reach out. So usually it's either you can start off by reaching out to suicide hotlines to talk about it first. If you are professional, when you 
are uh, ready, you can always go to a GP and then tell the GP what you're going through and then they will then refer you to uh, the psychiatric department in government hospital where you can uh, go through a psychiatric evaluation first. So then you can opt for either medication or then they will refer you to psychological help where you can go through therapy. So the options are, uh, there are a lot of options. That's what I'm saying. So, you know, just have to go out and reach for it. Mm -hmm. And then we can then evaluate how to progress from there. Yeah. And also mm -hmm. I would like to point out, um, because WAO is also in this podcast, right? Uh, mental health is, it's a spectrum. So there are people with mild symptoms. There are people with more severe symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. So the intervention mm -hmm. is different. So previously, all the uh, tips that we share, it's more to people with mild uh, symptoms. Yeah, but let's say if uh, it's to the point mm -hmm. where you feel like you want to attempt suicide. So that's where we will manage the case differently. And more drastic uh, intervention is needed. Uh, so even in the clinical setting, Yep. If if someone has that idea or there's a abuse case, uh, we have to break uh, private and confidentiality. So that's yeah. I think um, oh, well, being yeah. practitioners also it's important for us to differentiate between a mental health case and a <laughs> criminal case. Yeah. Um, yeah. So adding on to uh, what Joey has uh, so well explained. Yeah, you know, you're never alone. And I, and I speak for abusive or toxic relationships specifically. Um, it's very easy to feel isolated because that's what abusers mm -hmm. want you to feel. You know, they cut off your support system so that you only depend on them, right? Um, but, you know, that's really not the truth. Even though you feel that maybe you're alone, no one really cares about what's going on with your situation, or if you've never told anybody else about what's going on, um, there are you know, avenues of support for you. There are organizations out there who care and want to help you. Um, there's, of course, I'm sure you have friends or family members or even a neighbor who is concerned about what it is that you're going through, right? And I think it's really important to remember and to believe that people do have your best interests at heart and that a better and safer life is really possible. Um, no matter how bleak or like dark everything might seem, but if that is really is that first step of like reaching out um, and after that things will get better. Um, as cliche as that sounds, but it really is um, that's that yeah it really is that's yeah oh amazing I just yeah. I mean I guess like from my input and I think Joan and I were talking yeah, about this last night true. is that yeah. especially for our listeners that um, the majority of which would yeah. probably be at uni with us <laughs> um, is that you're you, when Joey talked about how it's, it's a spectrum and there's mild to like severe sometimes you don't know you're in the mild sometimes this whole like pressure of the the feeling of like I have to meet all my deadlines or my friends are talking to me or I'm going through this thing and sometimes you feel like you don't need help because it's never something uh -huh. that you you may have you may come from like Asia and that's not a thing that we have a lot here we don't talk about it as much I guess um right. but yeah from both of them just like really <laughs> seek help it's so available um whether it's a friend that wants to like um 
lend a helping hand or more professional services, obviously a lot better. But on that point, I guess what I would like to ask is what advice would you give to people who, who want to like, who see that there there's a friend of theirs or a family member or a loved one that is going through something. Um, and what advice would you give to them to like lend a helping hand? I think being uh, armored with resources to help uh, in Malaysia specifically, oh. uh, how the healthcare system works, um, whether you can also go to private, because in government settings, you, there is a long waiting mm-hmm. list. So there are other private centers. Oh, yeah. And then now with all the digital platforms coming up, that could be the first step into getting this person to speak to someone professional about it. Yeah, and then um, other than that, also, mm. um, I mm. guess also helping this person to find other support. So building like a yeah. strong supportive network. So just not you yourself, mm-hmm. um, but other people that can mm. also back you up uh, in supporting this person. Yeah. So uh, like for Ripple, we are looking into coming up with mm. a sort of mm. like a social support group, mm. whether it is for people suffering with mental health issues or like caregivers because I, I believe that that network will really help uh, well. support group of, yeah support group yeah support groups are really important because at WAO we also uh, do uh, have that uh, availability for uh, our survivors because most of them are mothers and all of them are going through similar situations right maybe they are re-entering the workforce uh, maybe they have trouble mm-hmm. with their children because the children are also going mm. through trauma and all that stuff. So yeah, the importance of the support group for people who are going through similar things, I think that is a way that we can really uh, provide better support for individuals like that. And so that you won't feel burdened mm-hmm. you know, by, by, by carrying this responsibility alone. It's, you know, as, as I mentioned before, it's emotionally heavy. And the last thing we want is for you yourself to burn out, right? Yeah. So, like, don't handle things alone, especially <laughs> if you know you can't handle it. Or, you're, or if you're not equipped to handle uh, crisis mm-hmm. situations, especially. Yes. Because people do grow, go through, like, proper training for things like that. You know, like psychological first aid and all of that stuff. Yeah. So, it's really important to recognize that as well. Thank you for listening, That's everyone, to our <laughs> podcast recording on Zoom. Zoom Pro, by the way. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening, everybody. Now, for KCL ASEAN Society, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at KCL ASEAN Society. For WAO, you can look, up, look them up and reach out to them if you ever want to through their Instagram and their Twitter, which is yeah. at women's Eight org and for their website, it is wao.org.my. For Ripple, you can reach them on Instagram. Their handle is at ripple.community. You can even find them on their YouTube channel, which is Ripple Community. Ripple Community.